Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college, and yeah, that was a long time ago. And he's also my kid's dentist. He's taken care of their teeth ever since they came along. He's a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patients' smiles and positioning. You can learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com, S-H-E-M-E-N. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to KAMR News Amarillo. They're online at myhighplains.com, and they've been such a good friend to this podcast over the years. You can watch me talk a little bit about every week's guest every Thursday at the start of Studio 4 on KAMR. If you're interested in Brick and Elm, read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Dr. Priscilla Correa. She's an assistant professor of nursing at WT, and she has worked there for the past 10 years, but she's originally from Southwest Kansas. And her childhood experiences seeing how her family members were treated by the medical profession was really instrumental in her career path, which led to her being a bedside nurse for several years and now to her position in an academic setting where she's training the next generation of nurses. The past couple of years have been really interesting ones in the nursing world in positive and negative ways. And we talk a little bit about that as well. So here's Dr. Priscilla Correa. Priscilla Correa, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. I know you've got an interesting story, and I know that, that you're doing work that is uh, particularly, uh, I guess, interesting right now and important right now, and I want to hear about that. But I want to start like I do with all my guests and just ask how you ended up in this area. So what brought you to the Panhandle or the Amarillo Canyon area in the first place? Well, I'm originally from Southwest Kansas. You know, I was married. I was a nurse. Uh, my husband was transferred here. He, at that time, he was working for Coca-Cola. Okay. So he got transferred to Amarillo. And so we moved on this new journey, moving away from family. It was still close enough. We could travel to Southwest Kansas, see right. our family on the weekends. But it was a new opportunity. Um, and so we moved here and just been here and love this area. How long ago was that? Um, it has been 17 years. Okay. So that's, yeah, you've, you've been here quite a while then, yes. I guess. It's not a new thing. No. Where, where in Southwest Kansas? I am originally from Garden City, Kansas. Okay. So I was born there and uh, raised there and in Ulysses, Kansas. Okay. So um, in those areas is where my family's still from. What is Ulysses, Kansas like? Is it really small? It's a um, very small rural town. Okay. Um, and so it was, you know, my parents worked there. They were janitors mm -hmm. um, at the school. And once, you know, they got older and needed medical care, they had to move to Garden City, right. which was a bigger... It's like happens here in Amarillo, too. Yes. And so, you know, we moved to Garden City, and that's where I went to high school, to grade school, middle school, and high school. Do you know what brought your family to... Kansas anyway, like in the first place? Um, I know, you know, my parents were much older when they had me. So okay. my dad was actually born in 1925. Wow. Okay. Um, and my mom is still here. She is um, 85 years old. She okay. was born in 1936. And so they originally moved as migrant 
you know, workers, they were moving to following um, employment opportunities. And so that, you know, they did a lot of things in the ranching industry and then, you know, moved up because there was family there or people they knew that connected and said, this is a great place to move. Um, And that's how they ended up in Southwest Kansas and been there ever since. Where are they from originally? Um, My father was actually born in Crystal City, Texas. Okay. And my my mother was born in Mexico and from Chihuahua, Chihuahua, Mexico. Okay. So... I'm interested to talk to somebody from that part of Kansas because technically it's sort of in the High Plains region. I mean, <laughs> HPPR has offices in Garden City as well as Amarillo. Um, and so it's maybe weird for us to think of Kansas as being in our area, but that part technically is. It's not that far away. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's the same sort of High Plains identity there as people have here in Amarillo. I mean, do you think about the region? Is it being sort of connected from that, that Kansas perspective. Yes. Yeah, so um, there's Garden City and there's Holcomb, which is a small little town that's like seven miles. Mm-hmm. It's a little rural town that's connected to Garden City, and that's where we lived. But it's very similar to Amarillo. And that was one of the concerns when we moved here was, is it going to be family friendly? Because we're moving into this. We kept thinking this was huge. You know, we're thinking right. this is a big city. And we came here and we saw the same values. You know, it was family friendly. It was somewhere where, oh yes, we can raise our family here, our kids here. And so it's still, it's still really similar mm-hmm. um, to the environment of Southwest Kansas. They still have meat packing plants, they have retail um, and hospitals. So it, it seems very similar in family fr- conservative, mm-hmm. family friendly areas is, it was really why we continue to stay here. Okay. That, that makes sense. Um, and a lot of times there's a perspective of Texas that people have, but, you know, Amarillo is very different from Dallas or from Houston or from mm-hmm. Austin. And, and it's interesting to see how um, that side of Kansas, you know, may have more in common with this area mm-hmm. than with Kansas City or, you know, all the things moving toward the east that way. I, I want to hear about your journey into nursing and how you decided that that was a career, you know, a field that you wanted to move into. Is that something you thought about when you were a kid or did that happen later? You know, I look back now and and like um, how I ended up where I am now. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just things aligned a certain way on my journey. And, you know, my parents were older. Mm -hmm. um, And so I was that young child. Um, You know, my mom was 40 when she had me. Wow. Okay. Uh, My dad was 52. Okay. Typical, you know, that's sometimes typical in Hispanic families. Um, And so I was the one who would translate for my parents. I would go with my mom to her doctor's appointments. And, um, you know, what what did they say? You know, translate this information. And I'm sitting there being, you know, I'm six or seven years old, eight years old, and translating. And so I would see a different side of healthcare um, when I would go to the appointment and we would be late because we couldn't find a ride to get to the appointment. And, you know, we frantically finally get there and we'd walk up to check in and they say, you're 15 minutes late. You have to reschedule. And I wanted to cry. My mom wanted to cry. And she's like, well, tell them we couldn't get a ride. And, you know, and I'm sitting there, I'm standing there behind the desk telling the receptionist we couldn't get a ride to get here. Is there any way you can see her? And they said, no, you have to reschedule. Mm. And so, that gave me a different perspective of healthcare um, and thinking, okay, I need to look at these people who are helping my parents because in those situations when they're ill and they're not feeling well, 
the nurses, the doctors, those people were helping them, regardless of their educational background, regardless of, you know, the, the language barriers, they were there to physically and mentally help them, mm-hmm. help them get across the barriers that they were having. And so that gave me a different perspective. We did have a physician who moved into Garden City that was um, a Hispanic physician. And I remember walking into that room, that patient room with my mom. And for her to be able to talk to someone in her language, it it was a whole different experience. I no longer had to be that person that was having to tell them, this is what she's feeling. This is how often she's feeling. It's such a hard position to put a child into yes. anyway. Um, it, it feels like a very grown-up thing to have to communicate all these health things in both directions, you know, from parent to doctor. But, yeah, that that just seems like something that is, is so hard for me to understand because I've never experienced anything mm-hmm. like that. And it was, you know, it was difficult. And to see that impact that he had to be able to talk to her and he would encourage me. He was, you know, his name was Dr. Abel Cruzado. And um, he would say, you need to go to school. You need to go in the healthcare field. You need to be someone who helps people like your mom. Mm-hmm. And he was very encouraging. And to see him as a medical doctor, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is something that I can do because he looks like me. Um, and so, you know, those things that happen along life, you, they leave an impression on you. You're just really not sure how big of an impression until later. And he was he was so kind, um, very generous to the Hispanic population. Um, Garden City really has a large population because they have a meat packing plant. Okay. Is it similar to like the Amarillo area, Hispanic population? I mean, in Amarillo, it's probably like... 35% or something is yes. pretty high. Is yes. And so that, you know, that's kind of how Garden City is. They, okay. you know, they had two meat packing plants. That was the majority of the workforce. My mom worked at the meat packing plant. And so in those environments, you know, it wasn't really um, a place where she had to speak English. So it was not anything that she had to learn. Um, and so she understands English. It's very broken. But those, you know, pieces moving and, so having to see that, then you go into high school. You know, I recall going back into high school, and I had a Spanish teacher, uh, Mr. Bernal. And he said, you need to do this. And he was a teacher. He was also a nurse. Really? Yes. Which I thought, you know, I think back now, I'm thinking, that's interesting. It is. Because he would be a Spanish teacher in high school during, the, you know, the regular academic year. And on breaks or um, in the summer, he would go be a nurse. And he would talk about those things. He said, I just love helping people. And it was in that journey um, that you go to high school, you do all these things, you, you know, you, you think about that's possible for me to go to college. I'm going to go to the community college. It's here. It's local. I can get plugged in. I can still be close to my family because I want to be close to my parents. It was very helpful to do that. Um, and it was in um, a program that they had in Garn City, which is so similar to the Los Barrios that they bring students in to talk about healthcare. They talk about, you know, all these different um, career choices. I attended one of those and um, it was sponsored through the school. I don't, you know, I think that had I not had those opportunities to see those things, my parents didn't know about those things. Okay. They, they would not have 
said, oh, I think you need to go do a college visit. Right. I, I think we need to go check this campus and see what you can do. You know, they just kept saying, I know you need to go to school. You need to go to college. You need to do an, you know, maintain your, you know, your academic. They kept saying, just do good in school. They didn't know what that really meant. Right. What happened after that? Yeah. Point. And they just kept saying, go, go to school and do good in school. And, and you're sitting there going, but how do you do that? How do you maneuver all those things? And there was really very special people in special areas, you know, at the university, at the college that helped me along the way okay. and, and really gave me that perspective and helped me. Did you have an idea what kind of nursing you wanted to go into? Once you got into school, I mean, I know that for a lot of students, they kind of figure that out along the way. What am I good at? What's really interesting to me? Did you know or did it? I, I did not know. I had actually um, applied. I had gotten into, I had been accepted to a four-year institution, which was, you know, six hours away from Garden City. Okay. What was that university? Uh, KU. Okay. So I, I you know, I was going to go to KU. I was so excited because we had done a campus visit. Um, and at that point, my father had a stroke. Um, and so he was older. Um, one of my older siblings, my sister, was in charge taking care of him, doing all the things for him. And then she got diagnosed with leukemia. Oh, wow. And she said, um, I really am going to need your help, um, you know, because she was dealing with, you know, all the treatments for her condition. And she made me the medical power of attorney at 18 years old for, you know, a father who was now, you know, had a stroke and was a diabetic and had all these poor outcomes from a chronic illness. And so I ended up staying local so I could be there and help them. And so, you know, I had already finished my two-year um, basics at Garden City Community College. And I said, well, I'm going to have to figure out to do, you know, I'm going to have to do something different. And they had a nursing program. And so I applied and they said, it just so happens that we had somebody who decided not to come to the program. We have a, a slot for you if you want to come. Mm. And so I said, sure. And so I started nursing within a matter of probably, I think it was a month within the notification. It was the most fulfilling, um, exciting thing to do. Um, it was hard work. It was, you know, um, intense. Mm -hmm. And... But I enjoyed it, and I thought this this is where I want to be. I want to help people. I want to take care of people. This is what I want to do. And while you were taking classes and doing the you know college level nursing, you were also learning it at home. You know, in a very practical aspect of it as a caregiver. Yes, uh, and that that seems really significant. That doesn't always happen. You know, at the same time for nursing students. You think about how experiences shape you and those experiences really were significant in shaping how I saw my career and how I saw what I did as a nurse okay. because I would go in and see you know how my father was treated and you know they would say well you're just uncompliant you're not taking care of yourself I think back now to those interactions and I'm thinking to I don't think he knew that having all these carbs was a problem he thought if he just he could eat all the carbs he wanted and just give himself insulin and he would be fine. Hmm. You know, and it was the basic education, um, but it did shape me. And in those situations, my college um, instructors were so kind to me. They kept saying, I know you have to go take care of something with your dad. And, you know, I'd be in class and I would say, oh, my gosh, they just called me. The doctor's office just called me. I have to go. Yeah. And they were so understanding. And so I would just do what I needed to do. Now that you're on the um, academic side, you're this stage in your career, like, do you look back at some of those early experiences, whether it was with 
the, the doctor's appointments when you were a kid or some of the care of your dad. Do you think there was a racism component to that? The way some of the medical staff treated your family? Was it more of a socioeconomic kind of thing? I mean, can you look back and say, this is what, you know, was in the way, getting in the way of his treatment? You know, I think back, and of course, my, you know, I got my PhD, Mm -hmm. and I focused on health disparities. Um, Mexican, my dissertation study was on Mexican-Americans' perspective of their diabetes care. Okay. And so, in my research, you know, you have these um, preconceived ideas, um, and when you're a researcher, you really have to point those out and say, these are my biases. This is what I think. I need to put those, I need to call them out for what they are, because I did have those things. I'm thinking, right. is it because they didn't understand the yeah. language? Is it a language barrier? Yeah. And so... And maybe it's all of those things. <clears throat> I think it's really all of those when we look at social determinants of health and we look at, you know... Um, all the barriers for healthcare. You know, you look at poverty, you look at education, language barriers, access to healthcare. You look at all those things and you say, all those played a part in Mm -hmm. how they were treated. And so as a child, I think it made me very hypersensitive to how people reacted. So, you know, I would translate for my parents and, you know, they would say, "This this is what you need to tell them. And then I could see what they were talking about my parents can understand, but I could understand what they were saying. And I thought, that's the meanest thing you could say. Yeah. You know, I still understand what you're saying. Um, and so I think there are components of those that kind of those underlying biases still kind of still impact healthcare. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about right. making sure population and vulnerable populations have access, that there's people that speak their language that can give them information. The biggest thing that we can do from a public health standpoint, community health standpoint, is to educate mm-hmm. and to let them know that these are the basic tenets of chronic illness. You know, there are some things that are more, you know, um, common in Hispanic families or African-American, you know, individuals. We have genetic predispositions to certain things, but it's the way that they are conveyed to the individual that can make someone very resistant to what you're talking right, about. Right. How long did you actually work as a nurse before you got into um, you know, pursuing your PhD? So I've been a nurse for 23 years. Okay. Um, and I have I been... guess the, the question is like, how, how long were you a full-time nurse <laughs> a working in nurse. a nurse bedside setting? Then? So in a bedside setting, I worked, um, I would say about eight years. Okay. And then I took some time off to raise my family mm-hmm. and um, started back to school in 2005. I've been in school um, then and, you know, worked here and, you know, worked um, in areas PRN. You know, I worked at just to work with uh, my schedule and my husband's work schedule because we have no family here. So those are the things right. you kind of have to um, really maneuver and be careful about. And so I would work PRN. Um, and then I've been at WT for 10 years. Okay. When you were uh, a bedside nurse, let's say, was did you have like a certain specialty? Did you work in a certain um, segment of the the healthcare world? Yes. Yeah, so I worked in ICU. Okay. Um, and that's a pretty intense nursing. That's a, that's a very <laughs> intensive. You know, um, I was very driven. I got you know I had a two year degree, had associate's degree, and then they had um, an internship that you could go into ICU. You had to apply for it. You had to go through you know a screening process. Then they would do this internship. You know, it was a small rural hospital. It's still larger than the r- small little towns, and I was accepted. Okay. And so 
I did that intensive um, internship, did that for a couple years, and then went into recovery um, in PACU. So I did all the surgery service, getting you ready for surgery when you're waking up for surgery, because there's still some, you know, trauma components, critical care components, did that. And then I did pediatric home health for several years and went back to what I love to do was um, PACU, taking care of patients waking up from anesthesia. So at what point did you start to think, I have this this nursing side, you know, doing PACU and, and working directly with patients, but then you also had sort of this you know, this drive to understand the healthcare world better and to advocate and teach. Like, when did you start thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to start heading this direction toward getting getting more education and being in a position of teaching? So I got my RN to BSN through WT um, and then thought, well, I'm in an administration role. I probably need to get my master's in nursing administration. So I went through the program and um Going through the program, I had a professor, and she's still a colleague, a very deeply respecter, Dr. Helen Reyes. Mm-hmm. And I did my leadership, my final courses of leadership with her. And we had a conversation. We, you know, we talked about healthcare and what we thought, it, you know, what I thought it should be. I had to put together a whole plan. And in that conversation, I said, you know, I have some friends who want to be nurses. And they said, the pay is really good. You know, I think that that's what I want to do. What do you think? And I said, you know, I think if you want to consider being a nurse, you have to care about people. And it's not about the money mm-hmm. because it is tedious work. It is um, life altering. It is one of those you pour everything you have into being a nurse and helping people because you see them at their worst time. Yeah, exactly. When they're the most scared or they get that diagnosis of, you know, you have cancer, you know, we're going to make you comfortable the next couple of days. You know, those are very moving, but also require a lot of you as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had a patient who was given that diagnosis given 48 hours. Wow. And she said, all I want you to do is be able to read scripture to me. Hmm. And so, you know, I was working night shift and I would read those scriptures to her. And I just remember saying, if this is what I can do for her, that's what I'm going to do. And so that conversation with Dr. Reyes, she said, I really think you need to consider coming into academia. Hmm. And I said, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's what really, you know, I, I, that's not where I could see myself. I, I never thought I could be there. And she said, you need to try it. Yeah, I really think you you would be a good fit. We would love to have you just come on part-time, be a clinical advisor and an instructor. Um, you can do that for one semester, see what you think. And I said, okay, I think I'm going to do it. And so I started, because you know, I went in, I was a clinical instructor, went into clinical with students. I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, and she said that the impact you can have on healthcare by training future nurses, it had not crossed my mind. Yeah. It's, it's a way to have a, an impact even greater than what you might have had, you know, in a, in a hospital room mm-hmm. with somebody. How that, that's one of the things about nursing, and it also applies to um, to being a physician. That is interesting to me is that being good at that job is more than just having the technical skills and the technical knowledge. There's so much of it that is bedside manner, and that's personality, that's emotion, mm-hmm. that's emotional intelligence. You know, your mm-hmm. ability to sense needs, and is is that something that you can teach? 
you know, in, in a college setting, how do you help students find that part of the nursing, which is such a soft skill? It's not a textbook skill. It, it is a very soft skill, and it's very difficult to do. Um, and if, you know, you, you share experiences, you can talk to your blue in the face, you can try to give examples, but it's being there present when those experiences happen that you can then draw that from individuals mm-hmm. um, because it is soft skills. You know, you have great caretakers, great physicians, you know, and they have great technical skills. But then when they get to the bedside, you know, patients say, I just didn't get along. I'm not okay with that. Um, And so you have to develop those things because, you know, the difference between, you know, physicians and nurses, hospital-based nursing care, you develop a relationship. You get to know their family. You get to know, you know, what drives them. And then they trust you. Much more present <laughs> yes. with the family in that situation. And so they trust you and they tell you things. And then you would have to then um, give that information to the physician. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a old Army physician that I worked with in ICU um, in Garden City. He, he, When I first came out of being a nurse, he would make me cry. I would see him come in and I, he would just, he would make me cry. And I thought... He would ask for a report. He wanted everything very technical. You know, if you didn't answer correctly and you didn't check the thing he wanted you to check it because he was, you know, army trained. He was an amazing surgeon. And he would he would make me cry when he would come in. And they said, it's okay. Just, it, just it'll be okay. Um, it took me probably a couple, three months when he came in and he said, okay, I'm done. And I said, yes. He said, I trust you now to take care of my patients. Wow. And so, you know, I think that sometimes as nurses, we are that person. We are the person that is next, is with the patient. Um, but it does take those soft skills and it's hard to teach them. Um, it's hard to develop those. It's possible, um, but it, it takes a lot of work. Um, and you have to be able to be open and present with students when they have their first patient pass away. Yeah. Yeah. Because those things happen. And, you know, I think that's been hard in the current, in the pandemic has been hard because, you know, their first day of clinical, they've, you know, they have to face death. And, you know, it's not elderly patients or Mm -hmm. chronic patients. It could be someone who was, you know, at work one day and the next day they had COVID and they passed away. And so it does take time. Um, But the great thing about nursing is that you can't, there's so many opportunities. You can work in ICU if you want to. You can work flight nursing. You can work hospice, you know, with patients that are end of end of life mm-hmm. and their families. And so, you know, I think that there's always a place depending on your skill set because we all have very specific skill sets. Right. Tell me, tell me about the the state of nursing right now here in this area because I know you know we're we're at the tail end of pandemic, which was incredibly intense, mm-hmm. lost a lot of nurses to burnout or mm-hmm. to other opportunities. Um, and, and it's not just a situation here. There's there's talk of a nursing shortage, you know, all over the United States. Uh, so tell me how some of those things have factored in to you as an educator, you know, the last couple of years. It has impacted the way we educate. Also, the way we see nursing and how individuals see nursing, you know, they were heroes, they were doing all these things. And then, you know, they, because of difference of opinion and the Mm -hmm. vaccine and the way those things were, you know, there's just, there was already a shortage to begin with. And then you have this huge strain on healthcare and 
You see people who were already, you know, high risk for poor outcomes or health disparities were more prone to passing away from COVID. Mm -hmm. And so that really changed the way we do nursing. Um, You see lots of previous nursing students that I have seen, they say, I I quit. I started traveling. You know, I'm making a lot more. Mm-hmm. you know, traveling, but there's also the down, you know, the there's good and bad in everything. And so now they're traveling somewhere else. They're in a different state. They're having to acclimate to different environments. Um, and so those things have really changed the way nursing and you know, I'm teaching RN to BSN students. So they're working nurses currently and they're saying, you know, we're so short staffed. Ha- I've been working five days in a row you know, I'm not able to, you know, do this, or I, you know, I need some additional time. You, you know, we have to be persistent and also, you know, be accommodating to those working nurses because they they have taken on so much during yeah, this pandemic. Yeah. Is there a part of what you do where you're thinking not just about educating, you know, nurses, but also almost recruiting, like like talking to students and saying, this is the field you need to get into. I mean, is, is that part of kind of what you do? So this is part of what, you know, is happening at this point. You know, I, I attended Los Barrios, the event with Los Barrios, and we, you know, talked about nursing and for those junior high kids who are interested in healthcare. And so you, you are recruiting, you are talking to people because people are curious, mm-hmm. you know, they're saying, I, I really, what, what does a nurse do? Because they, you know, I keep hearing all these stories, what happened, um, and so you're recruiting, you're also bringing truth um, at the same time, you know, trying to encourage those who are in nursing currently saying, this is really not how it is all the time. You know, this is, this has put a strain on nurses and we're hoping that this brings effective, positive change where things will change in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. where things will be different. You know, there's not going to be nurses who are taking on so many patients. There's going to, you know, there's, there'll be certain things and changes that will be positive for the profession. What are you seeing from from nursing students today? You know, the, the, the ones that you're dealing with, you know, when they think of why they got into it or, or maybe the attitude or perspective that they have being a younger generation. Uh, is, is there anything that's new or exciting to you uh, about these current students? The current students, they're very well informed. You know, they're a generation that has technology, you know, at at their hands mm-hmm. all the time. And so, you know, they come with already a, a real strong skill set of finding information, of confer- you know, confirming if it's actual or false. Right. Um, they, More so probably than their parents' generation. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, you think about that, you know, and you think, um, so you're trying to look at that and it's exciting because they bring new ideas. They bring new information and the way they see things are different than Perhaps myself, who was at, you know, bedside nurse 10, 15 years ago, you know, they're seeing something totally different. Their experiences are different. And so I think that's what makes teaching nursing students uh, very rewarding Mm -hmm. because I learn as much from them that they learn from me because they bring so much to the table. I know that WT is a Hispanic serving institution. I know uh, that that's also something that you're passionate about. And I, I wonder, like, are you seeing a career like nursing or any medical career growing in interest, you know, within that population? 
Yes. Yeah, so um, I am also part of the Latino Caucus for Public Health. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, healthcare has always talked about diversity in healthcare. Okay. You know, you want to increase diversity. And is that a statewide thing, the it, Latino Caucus? It is a, it's a nationwide. Nationwide, okay. Uh, and so you think about, you know, American Public Health Association. Um, we always... They're always talking about diversity. You know, patients will do better. They'll do well. They'll be more receptive if they have someone who looks like them. Mm-hmm. They have physicians that look like them. So there's a big push for that. And, you know, there's progress being made. You know, and if you look at the numbers, the Hispanic population is growing in numbers. Right. And so with that growth also comes, you know, a change, a change of environment, a change of educational settings. Um, you know, with WT being a Hispanic serving institution, we see those things changing um, in, in initiatives changing and things to help students who do have those parents. You know, I, I'm very passionate because I, I did. I had parents who loved me a lot who wanted the best for me. They just didn't know what they didn't know. Right, right. You know, they couldn't talk to me about, this is how you fill out the FAFSA. You know, did you know you apply for scholarships? You need to do these things. You know, I just didn't know those things. Um, there's opportunities that pass by, and I didn't take, you know, those opportunities because I didn't know about them. And so it it is, that's who I want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to encourage students, and, you know, there's a lot of initiatives with that at WT, which I'm very excited about. Um, and have been able to be part of those new changes, which I think will be great for our community. I want to switch gears a little bit, uh, move away from from nursing and talk about this area just in general, because, you know, you grew up in southwest Kansas and now you've lived here, you know, for 17 years or Uh or however long. What what have you come to really appreciate about the Texas Panhandle or the Amarillo Canyon area? I really appreciate that. It's very, you know, it is very family friendly, mm-hmm. um, you know, raising a young family. That's what you look for, you know, and I have appreciated that. I've appreciated mentorship from individuals who look like me mm-hmm. and just the support, you know, having support from community agencies, com- you know, when they see something worthwhile, you know, I think that Emerald is a great place when they see the ability to help others. You know, there's a lot of people who are willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. I think that that's a a great um, thing to have in a community because I, you know, a community is only as strong as their weakest link. Right. You know, if you think about those things, even a family, you know, you look at all those things, we're strong as the weakest link. And so if we can help others grow, you know, whether it's economically, whether it's by employment, whether it's by, you know, their health care outcomes, whatever we can do to do those things, we grow as a community. Does Amarillo feel like home? It is home. Okay. You, you think of it as home as opposed to Kansas at this point? I do. Okay. You know, um, I have people, you know, I, I was just selected. I was selected for a fellowship for the Texas Association of Chicanos in Higher Education. Okay. I was one of 12 for the state of Texas. All right. Congratulations Thank on you. that. Um, and so, you know, I went to the conference and they said, where's home? Where are you from? And I say, Amarillo. And they're like, oh, so you grew up there. And I s- no, I, you know, I've been there 17 years, but that is home. You know, we talk about those things, and, and this is where home is. Hey, Amarillo is supported this week by Blue Handle Publishing, a locally owned indie publisher with titles available from local authors, including Charles D'Amico and Andrew Brandt. Blue Handle currently has two new books available for pre-order, The Wizard's Brew by Jordan Reed and Black Bear Lake by Leslie Leotone. You can find these and other Blue Handle titles at bluehandlepublishing.com. That's bluehandlepublishing.com. 
This episode is also sponsored by the Texas Outdoor Musical. Texas is back for a new season with a new cast and a new vision led by artistic director Stephen Crandall, who was a guest on this podcast back in March. Tickets are available now for this family-friendly outdoor musical in Palo Duro Canyon. I'm planning to attend this summer. I'm really excited about it, and you should make that plan yourself. You can reserve advanced tickets at texas-show.com. That's texas-show.com. Okay, I'm back with Priscilla Correa of uh, West Texas A&M University. Uh, Priscilla, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with it. It's on the campus at WT. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight fossils that reveal the Panhandle was once a swampy rainforest, which is always fascinating for me mm-hmm. to think about because we are very far from swampy at this point. Uh, you can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, these questions are questions that I ask all my guests every episode. And I want to start with you the same way that uh, I start with everybody. Uh, but I think you have a little bit different perspective on it. And it's what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? I think it really has revealed that we have self-reflected. Mm-hmm. We have self-reflected on our families, our personal goals, um, Things that we thought, oh, we'll do them later because we have encountered and have seen so many people pass away from COVID. And um, it really has made us reflect on where we want to be, what we want to do, what fulfills us. And I think that has really changed um, local people, you know. People that I've worked with, you know, they've moved positions, they've done different things. They say, I really love to do this and I've, I've, I wanted to wait until later, but I'm going to do it now because yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of it. And, and really, it's national. And, you know, in some places, I know it's caused some trouble because people have had labor shortages, you know, the great resignation, people mm-hmm. quitting jobs. Um, but I, I hope that it leads to more fulfillment for people and people getting into jobs that maybe they're better suited for mm-hmm. and, and doing things instead of putting them off. So yes. that's been a really interesting, like, you know, social studies look at at how the world has changed. Uh-huh. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Maybe fast food. I can see that. You know, um, I think that coming from a population standpoint, you know, I, I wish there were, you know, more healthy options, though, you know, available to all in the area. So I think that we have a lot of those things, um, which might not be the best choice, um, but they're, you know, that they're here. And that's sometimes that's an economic issue, too, Mm -hmm. because the most calorie dense stuff is the stuff that's the least expensive. And so that's why a lot of people who are like closer to the poverty level mm-hmm. have poor health outcomes is because they're eating the cheapest food and that's not always the best food. No. And you think about, you know, reasonable pricing on um, healthy foods, mm-hmm. you know, and we see that across the nation is you want to eat healthy, you know, have you tried eating a salad every right. day? It, it can be expensive, you it know, can, going yeah. and eating fresh vegetables and fresh fruit, you have to have the transportation to get there. And then you have to, you know, and it, it's, it can be pricey. You have even parts of Amarillo that are food deserts yes. and it's hard to get to the healthy food. The closest thing is the convenience store down the street. Yes. And so I think that that's, you know, um, and there's a lot of great initiatives happening now because, you know, 
pandemic has brought those mm-hmm. things out. There's a need for these things. So there's, you know, great work that's happening to be able to do, you know, have access to those things. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? I think just access, you know, like okay. the food deserts. Um, I think if we had great choices for individuals who are at poverty level, um, who can, you know, might need to eat more healthier options, have that for them, you know, and have the ability to um, give information out. I think that that's one of the biggest things that I see within my research and also with the work that I do is that some individuals just don't know, mm-hmm. you know, and I, so I think that the education piece of that, educating our community, those that are at risk, that there's, you know, there's possibility of this program that might help you do these things, or they might help you reach this goal, um, you know, and having them be able to access those. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo Canyon to people outside the area? So I just had that opportunity while I was at a conference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they would ask, you know, how's how's your area? You know, how would you describe that? You know, Amarillo is a big, it's a city, but we're still, cons- you know, if you look at it in the big scheme of things, we're still really rural. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the top 26 panhandles is a Counties are all rural, um, and so everyone comes to Amarillo. There's still a lot of growth, you know, from healthcare access. And so you explain those things. Um, they ask, what do you have there? And we're, we have a you know, community college. We have a university. Um, and so we have some great things to do in Amarillo, um, but it's not Dallas. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's for our benefit. Yes. You know, that it's yes. not Dallas. Yes. Um, okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? You know, I work downtown, so I love going to House Coffee. I really enjoy the atmosphere, and sometimes you just have to sit and think about, you know, the next project or the next thing you're going to work on. And that, it's a great place to to really just sit and, you know, drink some amazing coffee mm-hmm. and just reflect. You know, we didn't even talk about um, the downtown aspect of, of, of WT. I think when most people think about WT, they think about the campus in Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, but the downtown one's been open for what, three years? It's about two or two three years. years. Okay. That yes. uh, has that like, do you like that? Does that feel like a, a great setting for, for what you do? Yes, it is. You know, I work a lot with the community agencies working mm-hmm. on a health fair. And so it has placed me in a strategic place yeah. where I can get to those places, um, and go to meetings and meet with community agencies. I love the place. It's an amazing place. So if you have not been there, you need to, you know, come to the Amarillo Center and see that. Um, it's, it's been a very great place. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant? The local restaurant, you know, I love authentic Mexican food. Um, and so I like to eat El Tejavan, which is on I-40 and Grand. Okay. I've eaten La Chosa. They, they are, you know, down on Grand. They um, have authentic uh, Mexican food. And I've so never been it. there. Yes. And I had no idea. It was one of my colleagues who said, you know, if you really want some authentic Mexican food, you need to go there. And I went and it's a small little restaurant. I, I think it, I'm not sure if it's family owned, but it is great, amazing food. It's called La Chosa? La Chosa. Okay. I'll have to look that up then. Yes. All right. What's your favorite neighborhood in the city? Well, of course, it would be mine. No. Um, but my my favorite neighborhood would be the Canyon downtown area. Okay. Like around the square? Around the square. Um, it's small, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm used to coming from a very small town. And so, you know, it is very friendly. It's You can get around. I love that. Um, but I also like to, you know, go to 6th Street mm-hmm. because, I, you know, I love you know, all the things that are there. So those are probably my two favorite places. Okay. 
And when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? It has been probably about five years ago. Okay. I'm thinking it's been about five years. Um, we have family that come visit, and so we take them to Cadillac Ranch. And it's like, you know, we get to do this. You get to spray paint. And, you know, it's always that uh, shock factor, like, this is really what you get to do here? Yeah. Um, yes. And so we've, you know, we this that's the spot where we take family when they come to visit. Okay. So that... Uh, concludes the eight straight section of the podcast. And I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? I am actually working on a project now, which is the community health fair, which will happen April 23rd. Okay. It will be at the facility Hillside Church um, North Campus okay. on Grand. On Grand at uh, uh, 24th and Grand. 24th and Grand. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be April 23rd from four to seven. We will have a community health fair and we have, we will have um, lots of community agencies, the health department, they'll be providing uh, vaccinate, free vaccinations for, or reduce, it's reduced vaccinations. There's some, you know, um, free health services that will be there. Um, and so bringing community uh, programs together to educate our community in one place is really what my passion is, okay. um, to educate individuals on health aspects, you know, how to access assistance, you know, to help them with their rent or child care. Um, because if you look at, you know, those individuals who are trying to go to school, those are some of the barriers that you see. And so, you know, I try to bring all that together in this project um, and, and help the community. Okay. That's good to know. Priscilla Correa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Dr. Correa for the interview and to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. Thanks also to my sponsors, Shimon Dental, Blue Handle Publishing, the Texas Outdoor Musical, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review if you want to. Tell all of your friends about the show, however you want to support it. I love it. I appreciate it. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. Heyamarello's executive producers include Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 243. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.